Okay, I got an amazing conversation for you today. If you remember back to the first episode I ever did with Drew Briney, it was about an amazing project that he was working on on making an annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, today Drew comes back on the podcast to have a conversation about the latest installment of that project, which is DNC 42. DNC 42 is all about consecration and united order. As we break down how Drew went about annotating this particular section, we dive headlong into what the early leaders of the LDS Church thought about these principles, how it was lived in both the Missouri and Utah periods, and what our responsibility is as Mormons today in regards to consecration and united order. Get ready for a deep dive into the subject on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. Back at it again. Yeah. You're a busy Been man. Not as hard as I can. You're a busy, busy man. I mean, I am I am astounded at the amount of work that you were putting out. We were just talking. You said four books last year. Yeah, four four books, and I uh, put out a couple new editions of some of my older works. Yeah. It's been nuts. super busy. <laughs> on you, top of working for as a woodworker yeah <laughs> yeah that's crazy and see here i thought i was doing good by you know getting above 100 episodes right and uh what i do is way easier than what you do i mean you're you're running circles around me but so dnc 42 that's the next one in the annotation that you're doing yeah it was it was unexpected i i, I sat down i've looked at over all the sections and I have kind of an idea of what I was going to do and 42 was not on that list and uh in, in fact actually at the point when I started doing it um I, I didn't have a full list of what I wanted to do I just had uh, a couple and uh, I was talking to somebody at, at Centennial Park and he said so what do you make of all the changes in DNC 42 I said well I haven't got there yet <laughs> and he said I'm really curious 
who made all those changes to the Doctrine and Covenants. They're not small ones. They're, and there are lots of them, they're substantial. They're like very, he, he didn't get into all the detail, but they're substantive. You know, they're doctrinal, they're substantive, they're, act, they're administrative. Um, and it's not just grammar and commas and stuff like usual. Um, it said, I want to know who did that and why and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I don't know. But so all of a sudden I said, well, I'm going to find out for him. And, uh, and I, I didn't figure I would just do the whole section because it's huge. You know? Yeah, it's like 92 verses. Yeah, I was like, I don't want to do another one like that. I want to do a couple small ones, you know. And, it's almost and like a those, small pamphlet or book. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I've been doing, well, my intention was to do monthly updates for the DNC project. And so, you know, I did the Amon Revelation. I did the Apocrypha. Um, I, you know, I did some smaller sections just to kind of get some momentum going. So I didn't want to bog myself down with this gargantuan section. But I thought at least I could do is go over the original manuscript, find out about the changes, which ones got approved by Joseph, which ones didn't, give it to him and move away, you know? Right. And uh, by the time I did that, I was sucked into it. <laughs> it anyway, it was a huge project. Much, so, much bigger than I thought. Did you, ever, <clears throat> did you ever figure out who made the changes? Was it one person? Was it multiple people? Yeah. Yeah, it was that was actually pretty straightforward, and I was really surprised. Um, so basically, Oliver Cowdery just made all the changes, and um, he made the changes and said, "I never, um, you know, I made a bunch of changes from the original published version of this, but they were all um, in the in the original manuscript, basically." Um, big fat lie. I mean, it just wasn't true at all. Um, <clears throat> It may be true, and I think it arguably is true, that the intention behind the original manuscript was not changed. Um, but there were a lot of changes. Um, and, and for instance, um, <clears throat> you know, they when when DNC forty two was originally written, there was no High Council. There was no revelation on the High Council. Right. And so it says, you know, if you disagree with the bishop on its consecration, they grab a couple of elders and they can, you know, sort it out. Well, Orson or Oliver Cowdery changes it and says take it from the, the high priests, you know, council of high priests or something like that. Well, that was after you read the the revelation on the high council and how it's supposed to work. That makes sense. That's kind of their job. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also not original. But is it the original intent? I mean, the idea is to have a supervisory board set up to oversee what the bishop does to make sure he's not being a bully. And and or to say to a person who's disagreeing with the bishop, you're a being unreasonable, you know, right. And the bishop's being a good guy and you're just making his job hard. Knock it off. The the intention appears to be the same. So that part was pretty easy. And, and you know, I've, I've got some quotes that, that I, um, you know, about those changes in the, in the introduction that just basically say, yeah, Oliver Cowdery did it all. Now, the next question is, um, did Joseph change those? Did he accept those? And, and the answer is yes. And uh, so then I was like, did Joe, was Joseph careful about editing these sections? What, what evidence do we have, you know? And, and for the most part, you know, it's not like we have a record of Joseph saying, well, today I went over the Doctrine of Covenants for publication in 1844, which is, of course, after he dies, you know, and in that process, I went through sections, blah, blah, blah. And we just don't have a record like that. He didn't 
you know, he wasn't that meticulous. He'd just say worked on DNC or, you know, went over to the, the office and he doesn't say what he worked on. So there's no way to know that per se, um, except for one thing. And I, I wish it was on the top of my head, but it's not. Um, there was one place where he changed one letter, but it completely changed the meaning of the word <laughs> by changing that letter. Um, and, and, uh, it was so it was such a meticulous change that he made it's clear that he was paying attention he didn't just pass off all these changes absent-mindedly he was reading over it carefully yes this is the intention behind what i wanted and you know that he so he in in my estimation looking over all the original documents he approved all of those changes and frankly if you read them um you know, they, it, it makes sense. And, and maybe I could just, I'll read over a couple yeah. while we're talking. Um, it's okay. So I'll, I'll just, I'll just read part of it. The, the consecration starts in but verse 29. Before you do that, I got one question on this. If Joseph okay. approved, if Joseph approved of these changes, why do you think it is we need to look back then? Do you feel like that there was like, I guess, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Drew, I imagine that Joseph's making changes because, you know, he wasn't he wasn't comfortable in one part of where he received the revelation or um, he's like, you know, I think I may have gotten that wrong in, in as I was dictating it. What, if, if he's okaying these changes, is there anything that we're going to see in in this annotated version of 42 that's going to be counterproductive if you will um no i i if, if i'm understanding you correctly um no uh, so first of all um i i think it's helpful actually to look at the original changes and, and I guess that's kind of like, why Why do we want to even want to look at this? If Joseph proved him, why even look at what it used to be versus what it is now? That's basically what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, because okay. my thought would it's be... It's a fair question. Yeah, and so um, I think there, there are two things, and, and this gets into a really big rabbit hole I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later, but DNC 42 was not liked by the membership. Um, it was wholesale consecration as outlined in DNC 42 was wholesale rejected by the church and has never been lived by the church. And the saints still didn't want to live it 20, 30 years after, even after they, you know, they've been through the temple, they got their endowments, they did covenant consecration. They still didn't like it. Um, and, and I'll talk about some of those talks later and kind of how they, how they approached that. But so I think from that context, I think the changes are significant because you look at it and what I see when I see the changes is Joseph and um, Oliver Cowdery probably. Thank you. Sorry. What, what you see sorry, for the audio, I'll just start what I just was saying over again. What we see is Joseph and Oliver Cowdery saying part of the problem with the membership is they don't, understand the principles behind what we're doing they don't understand what the doctrine covenants is trying to say and so we're going to interpolate and mostly add a bunch of new material so that they can understand it better 
And I'll okay. give you some examples of those. That's why I was going to share some. Um, and I, I don't have the original manuscript in front of me, so I have to literally look at each one of these um, um, and, and see what it is. But in verse 30, it starts out, and Behold, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrated thy properties for their support. Okay, that's not in the original. Um, it just basically says, Thou wilt consecrate thy properties. Oh, okay. And, in which thou hast with a covenant deed, you know, that's the original, but now it says, which thou hast to impart unto them with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. So he's saying, you know, why are you consecrating? It's for the poor. Okay. Verse 31 starts out, all this is new. And inasmuch as you impart of your substance unto the poor, you will do it unto me. Right? So the original is basically saying, consecrate it to God. That's what it's saying. Okay. Um, but but they're saying you're not understanding that if you're consecrating it to God, you know, what it's really saying is give it to the poor people, and that is giving it to God. He doesn't need your stupid donkey, he doesn't need your mule, he doesn't need your 10 pounds of flour once a week. You know, this is for the poor. Okay. So he's he's talking so so in verse 30 and 31, he's actually um ascribing intent what this is for. Right. Okay, that makes sense. All right. And then and then he says um, in verse 32, which is a long verse, I'm going to start in the middle, he'll just say, um, the properties cannot be taken from the church, agreeable to my commandments. Every man shall be made accountable unto me, a steward over his own property. So, you know, at first it's just saying, basically, you consecrate some of the property, get some back. Right. But he's he's saying, okay, you're missing the point. You know, you're laying them before the bishop to show him what you've got. He's taking all of it, everything. And then you're receiving part of it back, but as a steward over it. So it's not like you own it again. The, and, and, and Orson Pratt went to great lengths to explain this doctrine to the people. He does. I'm not an Orson Pratt fan, but he does an amazing job in 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 his commentaries on this section to really explain the principles behind it really well. And he says like the only way you can get an equality among the saints is if they recognize as, as a principle, everything belongs to God. I'm giving everything back to God. And we all recognize that no whatever we're doing in our respective parts of the vineyard, we're all working for God and furthering his purposes. And so we receive back what we need and everything else goes towards building God's kingdom. It's his anyways. And, you know, people weren't understanding that they're like, you're just giving charity to the poor people and, and, and they're teaching. And, and one of the, one of the um, talks in particular focuses and says, the first principle is get rid of the poor among you. Right. Like, like don't get rid of the people, get rid of the poverty. Right. That's the first thing, you know, and, and that's where a lot of people struggled right away is they're like, wait a second. Why am I giving all of my everything to the Bishop? Like, what's he going to do with it? Right. You know? And the doctrine of covenant says he's going to give it to the poor. First of all, get rid of the, the poverty. We, we got to get that out of our, out of our midst. And then after that's taken care of, then whatever's left over, then we use that to build the kingdom. 
So, but in the original version of the Doctrine and Covenants, that's not super clear. Okay. And 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 so you know we have to have these um, uh, clarifications. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, it, it, at any rate, and and then you know there's some corrections. There's several corrections about um, you know if you have a disagreement with the bishop and all that sort of stuff, um, then you know it goes before high council and this sort of sort of thing. Um. But verse 33 is a good example of interpolation. Um, it says, again, if there shall be properties in the hands of the church or in the individuals of it, more than is necessary for their support after the first consecration, which is a residue, all that's new. That wasn't okay. in the original. So it just says, and again, with the residue, you know, um, give it to the bishop. But now it's explaining after your first consecration, if there's still extra, that's a residue. Or that's you know then that's something that you're you're consecrating. So um, again, you know it's it's not a one one off thing. And so I, I think when we look at these changes and recognize the saints were not willing to keep the original law. So Joseph makes an attempt to to make it or Oliver Cowdery, sorry, and I I think frankly Oliver Cowdery was under Joseph's direction to do things. Right, and he did take some liberties with the DNC, got chewed out for it, um, and, and, and frankly, the editors in the 1844 basically said some people changed some stuff without proper approval, and so we had to fix that. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a spat about these issues, but at the end of the day, what the clear effort is, if you look at the the actual changes in this section of the DNC, is just trying to get people to understand it better. It's like you, you don't understand the purpose of consecration. You don't understand what we're doing. And that's really the problem. And if, if you understood better, maybe you'll live it. Right. Okay. I, so, so I think that's why it's, it's helpful to look at all these changes. And, and literally, like I was saying, if I'm looking on the paper and I've, I've got all the changes in blue, and that's just a format thing for digital versions of the, mm -hmm. in my software. Um, Half of the page is blue because there's literally that much was changed. And it's not commas and punctuation or capitalizations or bad grammar. It's interpolation over and over again. So do you find that that most of these in 42 are additions rather than wholesale yes. changes? Almost no deletions, almost all additions. Okay. And they're very interpolative. Um, they're very clarifying. There, there are some that are changing. Here's the administrative things that have changed with the church, like I mentioned, high council. There's several of those things. Um, but mostly it's just trying to get people to understand this is what the bishop's going to do with your, 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 your money. If you're going to go give the bishop $10,000 today, you're going to be like, I want to know what you're going to do with $10,000. Know? Yeah. And if you're with $100,000, you know, like I'm giving all of it to the bishop. He's going to give me thirty thousand back because that's what's the average, you know, amount that saints get. Where, what's he doing that seventy thousand dollars? Right. I'm working my butt off. You're going to take seventy percent of my money. I want to know where it's going, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I think that was their first effort was to say, okay, we we need to help people understand what the bishop's doing with this. And in fact, if you look at the other sections of the doctrine of competence that address consecration, we see them kind of 
amending and backstepping from the original DNC 42 to, to make it easier to understand, to explain what the bishop's doing, and to make it less hard, less difficult. Um, and that's that didn't work either. That, that's that's kind of the next stage of of of, uh, 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 of, of the historical record, I guess. Gotcha. Th this is fascinating because we get a glimpse, like what you're doing here. I think really a lot of people, including mainstream LDS folks, have been asking, "What was the process?" For the Doctrine and Covenants, right? Because I've, yeah. I've made this contention for a long time. The Doctrine and Covenants is unique in all of Christendom, probably in all religion generally, right? Because it got to be close to 90-some percent of everything that's said is coming direct from the Lord, right? Yes. There's no, there's no real interpretation going on. It's Joseph asks a question, Joseph gets an answer, they get published, right, with some editing, yes. that sort of stuff, right? Yes. Now, I think that 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 why this is so interesting is that this gives a glimpse into the process of how Joseph Smith received revelation. And just yes. as we were talking here, it seems like he's he he's not getting so much words as he is ideas and principles, right? Yes. And then yes. as as he dictates it in the moment. He's not thinking about, are other people going to be able to understand this? Right. Or how are they going to misinterpret it? Right. He's just spitting it out as it kind of comes, so to speak, right? Yes. And so this is fascinating because this shows that Joseph will, will receive these revelations, and he knows what the intent is because he's the one receiving it. And yes. then he puts it forward, and then he's like, well, wait a second. That doesn't necessarily describe Express. What I express the intro, you know, the the, yeah. the intent there, and exactly. so this is fascinating because because this kind of forces Joseph to go back and almost reanalyze what he had got in the moment, and could look at it and go, okay, so I'm going to have to add some explanation here because this is what I really received. Yeah. Um, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, can I interrupt there? Yeah, I. That's that is such a big part of, of what's happening here, and and, and we, we're going to see it all throughout church history with consecration. But um, I, I just ran across a passage with with that um, on the baby resurrection doctrine the other day as I was reading in the words of Joseph Smith um, and looking at some out external accounts of the baby resurrection doctrine, which was that you know babies that died would be resurrected as babies and stay babies you know, reigning on thrones. Well, one, one of the interpretations has been, well, Joseph changed his mind. He learned better. And later he said that they would grow. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the original accounts is and, and the original accounts are pretty vague. Right. But one of the original accounts there that didn't get published as the TPGS or whatever, you know, um, that account basically suggests that the baby will grow when it's resurrected until it gets its full stature. It's not super clear, but it, it throws that somebody heard that as part of the discourse and they mm -hmm. understood it at that time. The same thing he was teaching 10 years later. 
Well, there's another account of Brigham Young saying, well, Joseph said they wouldn't grow, and later he did, said, did grow, and I, I can't make any sense of it. And he's disturbed by it. Well, I think it was William Clayton's journal is the one that picks up from the first count when everybody else said Joseph's, they, they wrote down Joseph said the baby's going to be resurrected and reign on the thrones as a baby. Um, he was the one, I think, so uh, subject to correction, um, who wrote in his in his journal entry, Joseph taught babies to be resurrected and would grow, you know. And so he caught the nuance, but most of the others did not. And so then the formal record sounds like, you know, he's going to be resurrected as a baby and stay that way. But he's telling mothers, you know, grieving mothers privately, when when your baby, when, when your baby's resurrected in the millennium, you'll get a chance to raise the baby until they're fully grown. Right. You know, and then later he preaches that publicly because people are confused because they misheard it. But he's not learning. He's correcting. He didn't express it well the first time. And maybe it wasn't recorded well either. And we're stuck trying to decipher all that. And there's a lot of effort going back historically for historians to try and say, Joseph was just learning. True, he was learning. We have evidence of that. But that's not always the way you need to interpret the historical record. And I think DNC 42 is one of those situations where historians and people talking about consecration want to say, well, Joseph was just learning. He wrote down this idea. It sucked really badly. It didn't work. Nobody liked it. And so he tried to a new version. And so he writes, you know, in this other section of the Doctrine of Covenants, well, you don't consecrate everything, just your surplus. Okay, so that makes it easier. Now people aren't quite so scared. They can still, you know, keep stuff and not lose it by deed and all this sort of thing. And, but if you read the discourses of the early brother talking about what happened, that's not how they understood things. And that's not what was going down. And I, I think that's super, super interesting all by itself to explore that question uh, of what they were teaching in terms of what you were saying earlier. This is God giving a revelation. And what we have is Joseph Smith expressing his understanding and then correcting some details later. But God's still the one in charge telling him the details. Joseph's not making up the details. He's making up how you express the details. So, you you know, is, is God learning? You know, he's he's not being surprised here. Right. He's not learning. It's, and, you know, it's so you, that nuance of how you look at the text changes things. And so this is where it gets really interesting to me. And what really changed my perspective doing the research for this book was mostly Orson Pratt. And, and to be fair, I'll kind of reiterate, I've been an anti-Orson Pratt person in my mind for multiple reasons. Um, he got in trouble with Joseph. He got in trouble with Brigham. He's fought, he fought with Joseph over doctrine a couple times, not as heavily as he did with Brigham, fought heavily with Brigham, repented, said, I'm so sorry, and then he published against Brigham again on the same issues again later anyway. You know, I mean, so I'm just, I'm not a big Orson Pratt fan. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, at any rate, you know, it is it is what it is. It, uh, he's a good guy. I'm not trying to badmouth him. I'm just not a big fan of him. And I don't always trust what he says doctrinally because he's very well read, but he didn't always understand what was being taught. And then he adjusted from there. And that that's fine. But I, I want somebody who's inspired. That's somebody who's right. thinking hard. You know, I can think hard. 
And, and I like to think hard and I like to trust myself when I think hard. But at the end of the day, after I think hard, I pray and, you know, ask for correction. And right. it seems like a lot of times Orson Pratt didn't do that. And in fact, Brigham Young taught him at, at one point, he said, um, I, I don't remember the exact thing, but Brigham said something to the effect, if I haven't read the Bible in 30 years, and you'd be better off if you didn't either. You need to spend more time praying on your knees in the woods. And then maybe you'd be more doctrinally strong because you could get some revelation instead of all your stupid ideas. Anyway, yeah, they exchanged words. They, it wasn't quite, quite maybe that harsh, but maybe it was, it depends on how you read it. But I I find the interactions between Orson and Brigham fascinating, right? Especially when they're contentious. And the reason I, I find them fascinating is I think that um, that he uh, what we see is we see two guys who are passionate about what they believe, right? And I'm with you. I I, I I'm not a terrible fan of, of Orson Pratt, um, which breaks my heart because he was a surveyor, but <laughs> but but. At the end of the day, I, you know, I, I side with Brigham on way more things than I do with Orson. However, I think that that kind of a sidebar here, because there's a few things I want to unpack on what you just said. Um, You got two guys who who you just get the feeling are kind of the same in some ways. Right. They're going to come to their conclusions and then they're going to hold to those conclusions unless you can prove 100% that you're off base, right? Yeah. And they go at it. About the gospel. What's yeah. that? And they're both very passionate for the gospel. Yes. And they go at it, right? They go at it hard, right? There are certain things that Orson said about Brigham that had I been Brigham, two things could, would have probably happened. One is I'm going to excommunicate you, and then we're going to fight in the street, right? <laughs> but, and, and this is where... I also think that this is fascinating because you can see, you know, Brigham gets the the rap of not having any patience whatsoever. But someone asked Brigham once, why don't you just X him, right? Get rid of him. And yeah. he's like, you could cut that man into a thousand pieces and each one would testify that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I, I think that's a lesson we need to learn. Um, especially within Mormonism, we're going to have different ideas. We're going to have different beliefs yeah. and that's yeah. fine. As long as we can kind of stick around those basics, we can work with yeah. each other a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we may not be able to hug it out on Sundays, but we can sure work together on Saturdays. And <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I find that fascinating. The, the other thing I, I wanted to to ask about is, as you studied 42 here, because consecration is a touchy subject even today, right? Yes. What was your takeaway there, right? Because because there there seems to be two, two overarching narratives with this, with consecration. It was either a really bad hippie commune that never got up off the ground really well, mm-hmm. or it was... Um, a, a power grab if you're on the the, yeah. the anti-mormon yeah. side of things in in your opinion after studying 42 seeing the original record seeing and then comparing with what we got now and then maybe looking at at, at practice 
what was your idea of how the saints and Joseph especially envisioned consecration being lived? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And um, I, I would say the the biggest thing, and, 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 and for me, what really makes the books that I'm doing on the subject valuable is I'm providing all of the known commentary from the brethren on that section in the book so that you can see what how they interpreted it. So in answer to your question, I would say originally, before I began studying and unpacking this section, my understanding was, and, 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 and frankly, I hadn't delved into it super deep. I was, um, I was heavily involved in the Rocky Ridge Order as an attorney. I was heavily involved in attending their meetings every week for a decade um, or closer to 15 years. Uh, I listened to all their, their thoughts and arguments many times in priesthood about what consecration was. Um, but I felt like I hadn't really researched it well. Mm-hmm. But from that perspective, it seemed to me that Joseph introduces consecration in 42. The saints try and live it. They screw up um, and it doesn't work. So Joseph goes, asks more questions, um, tries to implement that, screws up, doesn't work. So Brigham Young tries to, to do the same thing and you know experiments around with different United Orders and it just never really worked. Um, I don't see it at all like that anymore. So let me let me read to you a couple of things that Orson Pratt wrote that were key in changing my perspective on this, and then um, then the next thing that I, I wanted to point out was kind of you know why did God reveal something that He knew the saints were going to reject, right? And 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 especially wholesale in the way that happened. I think that's a fascinating question. But first, let's go back to what Orson said. Um, let me double check that this is worse than Pratt. While, while you're doing that, I, I just want to give you a warning. You want to be careful quoting dirty surveyors. We're we're all over. And so, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I've 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 uh, previewed all of this, so we'll be good. This is Journal of Discourses, Volume 16, page five. Um, when he saw the hold that the traditions in which he had been trained had upon our hearts he, meaning God, revoked for the time being the law of consecration. Says one, what? God revoke a commandment? Yes, that is the way he did in ancient times, and he's the same God yet. He did it for our good. For if the law had been fulfilled and had been in full force for this people, would not have been in the mountain. These, ah, oh, sorry. If that law had been in full force, this people would not have been in these mountains this day. Our selfishness and covetousness are so great that as a people, we never would have complied with it. A few amongst us might have done so, but as a people, we should have been overcome and ruined. But owing to that law being revoked, many of us will now perhaps be saved. Okay, so I don't know if if that's doctrinally accurate that it was revoked. Um, that actually doesn't seem to be the case to me. Um, but it is Orson Pratt saying, God threw this out there for us because this is the fullness of times. You want to know what the full doctrine is, how things work? God doesn't appoint us partial heirs. 
He doesn't say you will receive most of what God has. He says you will receive all that God has. You will become an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That A joint heir, legally speaking, means you get equal mm-hmm. division. Orson talks about that and distinguishes that a little bit. It, it does a very good job, by the way, of talking about joint heirship um, and, and what that might be different. But that's, that is the, the order of heaven. And so he's saying, I'm giving you the order of heaven here. And so then we can't live it. We screw it up. We're like, this is too hard. And frankly, I think the major reason is because we don't trust. Um, if, if God was the one who's the bishop, then we'd be like, okay, <laughs> take it all. you know. And we wouldn't be so covetous maybe. But because we're appointing a man and saying, okay, Brother Drew's going to be the bishop. And say, well, Brother Drew doesn't know how to manage his money. He's been poor his whole life. You know, I'm not giving him my $100,000 to give to somebody. He doesn't know the right person to give it to. And, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that's a big part part of it. But still, he's given us a commandment we can't keep. So Orson Pratt goes on to explain um, a lot of what it's about. Um, and, and, and he says we need to get two things to get this figured out. Well, first is we're consecrating to God. And so he says, this is Journal of Discourse 2 page, I don't know, 300 and something. Looks like seven, maybe. Um, when a man wishes to give anything, let him give the best he has got. That's a principle the saints did not get. And Brigham complained about it quite a bit. He's like, you know, some people's idea of consecration is they've got, okay, I've got 100 horses, so I'll give you 10 horses. And one of them's got shoe rot, the other one's got a bad knee, and the other one, you know, is so old, it can barely do things you know and he complains people had consecrated cows that had all the teats bitten off by the coyotes and so no longer could be milked well and you know this sort of stuff and and so people are kind of giving their junk to to the bishop and so orson pratt's like first of all you 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 don't give you know your your worst stuff you give the best that's that's what sacrifice has always been like that so you don't get that and another principle that he hit really, really heavily was to say, look, um, this is what you don't get. It's the King Benjamin thing. The air that you breathe, you owe to God. Every particle of this planet belongs to God. However, it's been reorganized in the form of a wheel or paper or steel or fork or whatever form those elements are, they're God's. You are just a steward over them. Your wives, your children, you're, they're borrowed. They are borrowed. Those are gods, and you are borrowing them. And you need to understand they are gods. Until he himself, with his voice, declares that they are yours, they are not yours. That horse is not yours. The house is not yours. Get it through your head. It's gods. And if we understand that, then we begin to understand consecration. And that we're just giving back to him what's his. And letting him decide through his bishop what you get back and what you need. And, you know, then at that point, um, you get what you need to survive and what you need to do for your business to increase your income and to make more income and more surplus for the next year. That's what you're giving back in excess of your needs so that every man is 
developing his talents and producing as much as possible for the order by dipping that up in a way that's the most wise. That was the idea. And he said, if you understand that the idea is everybody to give their surplus, and then we divvy it out to those who are able to generate the most and make the most increase with it, and it's all for the kingdom and you're all going to benefit from it, if you could understand that principle, then you're, you would struggle with consecration. But everybody's like, I earned it, I want to keep it. And mm. the poor feel entitled to help or something. And so they're like, you know, he's got all this extra money. And it's not right for me to live underneath him. You know, you shouldn't live above your brother. And they're doing it. So they get bitter about it. So everybody's griping at each other. They said, you, you're just not understanding the principles here. And so he, they really tried to, and Orson frankly did a better job than any of the other commentators and, and hit the topic more frequently than in any of the other commentators. Um, so this is where it gets interesting. And I'm just going to read one quote for you. Um, and it's in, in, it's in Journal Discourse 13, page two. It's Brigham Young. Um, Brother Pratt and his discourse had considerable to say with regard to the property of the saints. I would like very much if the time was now when the Lord would say, lay down your substance at the feet of the bishops and find out who in this church would be willing to give it all up. So he's basically saying, I would like it if now was the time when DNC 42 was in action. That's basically what he's saying, because none of the other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants really says that. It says give your surplus or something, but this one just says lay down all of your substance at the feet of the bishops. But this is the key thing he says that it was so fascinating to me. Um, this cooperative movement is only a stepping stone to what is called the order of Enoch, but which in reality is the order of heaven. So the reason that's significant is because people are saying, well, Brigham Young was trying to figure out the United Order. So he started up all these different United Orders, trying different things to see what would work. That's actually not what happened. Um, and there are several commentations in, 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 in the book that tell you more of what happened. Um, but this is, this is as good a summary as any, um, as far as being short and pithy. What Brigham did is he went around to the different individuals and said, what are you willing to do? This is what Dr. Covenants tells us. What are you willing to do? And when the people that he spoke to talked to him about, um, spoke to him about um, consecration in terms of the, the cooperative movement that was then kind of going around, you know, they're like, we like a co-op idea. That works. He says, all right, well, let's start a co-op here and we'll do these rules. And they're like, all right, we'll try it. And so he went around the different communities and started these different co-ops with this kind of an attitude of saying, what are you willing to do? And it, they, they weren't that clear in saying it like that, but that's basically what was going on. And so Orson Pratt says, I'm really excited that we're gaining some momentum, but what you guys don't realize is Brigham Young is not, not putting your, your nose to the ground and making you live consecration. He's putting your nose to the ground to see what you're willing to do so that we can have a stepping stone towards doing what's right. And I just want you to do what's right. So I thought that was fascinating. So instead of looking and saying Brigham Young's experimenting, trying to figure out how in Hades is where we were supposed to post apply the Doctrine and Covenants, it's just not clear about these details. 
it, actually it is pretty clear about what to do. The saints just didn't want to do it. Right. And there are several discourses where the brethren are saying, you guys rejected consecration. So God gave us some modifications. You rejected those too. So he gave you tithing. He said, how many of you are either paying full tithing? You won't do that either. And, and, and people, you know, you've got some few people who say they want to live consecration, but you're not. You're not really doing it. You know, you're, you're doing some baby version of it. And, and they're saying, we want to go back to the real thing. That's what Brigham's saying. That's what Orson Pratt's saying. That they're saying, we're just working with you at your level. That's what we're doing. And uh, so I, I, I thought that was really interesting. And so now I look at it more as this is the saints, again, not doing their duty and the brethren trying to get them to do their duty, you know? Right. Interesting. So, so um, kind of jumping forward in time, um, so I'm now living in Colorado City, which it's, it's not because I'm FLDS, because I'm not. It's just a pragmatic living quarters situation. Found some place that was, just worked well for our family. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been making some, some friends out in Centennial Park. And uh, I asked to talk to some of them and say, you guys have a, concert, or a United Order that seems to be doing really well. If you drive around the neighborhood down there and you can see uh, they're doing really well. Um, there, there are several gargantuan mansions there that might as well be castles there. I mean, they're huge. And a lot of the properties are really nice and well-kept and very large. Um, and everything in their community, for the most part, is at least middle-class and mostly upper-class. So they're doing very well financially. And that wasn't the case 30 years ago. They, they were really poor and struggling, from what I've heard. So I was talking to them and saying, um, and, I, and I'm having ongoing discussions with them because this is an ongoing issue for the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm going to cover more of these sections as time goes on. I said, you know, I was with Rocky Ridge Order for about 15 years, working with them on a regular basis and talking to, they were my friends, you know. Right. And there are several other orders in AUB, and I did a lot of legal work for them, and I met a lot of those people, and they're also my friends. Um, so I kind of have an idea of how they've implemented the United Order and you know, how they've done things. So what did you guys do, you know? And I kind of expected him to sit down and I, and I told him, you know, I'm wondering if somebody has this kind of information that can sit down with me and say, DNC 50 says this, and 45 says this, and 70 says this, and 78 says this, and 107 says this. Um, and so we, we did these things, you know, that's kind of what I was expecting. Right. Because that's, that's what I saw, you know, and when I would go to the United Orders in AUB, they would say, well, Dr. Covenant 78 says this and 107 says this, and you know, whatever, you know, they'd all have their two or three verses that they really liked and you know, they think everybody was messing up and, and right. that's what they would focus on. And, and that's great. That's how we learned the gospel and you're just doing the best, you know? Um, so I sat down and I, I talked to them and said, how did it start with you guys? And, and uh, they've got an actually very interesting history of it. Um, but the long story short is uh, a lot of the people there didn't have a strong doctrinal grasp of the united order they had kind of tradition and all a lot of that was fldS before they split 
And, and so they had a really strong feeling about United Order and serving and helping one another, but didn't have a strong doctrinal grasp of it. Gotcha. So at any rate, they had a, they, they had a, a kind of a fledgling version of United Order started up, but they're, um, they're, they're, uh, I, I don't honestly know their, how they call their titles and stuff, but I would say they're, they're senior apostle. Mm-hmm. Um, basically got a bunch of committees together and said, I want to, you guys to figure out and draft up a, a United Order that, that, that you guys cannot live with. And he basically told them, I don't want some scholar to come tell us all the things that we're not doing that isn't in the Doctrine of Confidence and why we're wrong. What I want from you is tell me what you're willing to live. What are you willing to do? And, and when, he, when the guy I was talking to told me, I said, told this, said this, I said, that's genius. You know, that's what Brigham Young was trying to do, which I hadn't known until I was researching this section and reading all this commentary. Because I've, I've read some of the histories and the, you know, the articles, and I've listened to a lot of them summarized in meetings and stuff. And, you know, they're saying, well, Brigham Young tried this, but it didn't really work. And so he tried something else for this order, and that didn't work either. And, you know, they're, they're making all these things out to be human error. And, and really what Brigham was just saying is, what are you guys willing to do? And we'll, we'll get started. And, and like at the quote I just read, he said, this is just a stepping stone to do the real thing. And, and that's what this guy did. He basically said, you know, what, what are you guys willing to do? And because of their traditions, you know, and because the whole concept of consecration is pretty selfless, they had, from what I understood, and, and I've only kind of had a few conversations, so nothing major, but my understanding from is, is they just looked at it and said, well, first of all, we don't want any poor among us. And so that principle really stood out. So, you know, when, when they ca- calculate their tithing, historically speaking, I think it's far from accurate. It's kind of how the church does it. Um, if, if you want to say, how do they calculate consecration? Honestly, I've got a quote from Joseph says they're doing it exactly wrong. <laughs> um, but, but the principles and the purpose and intents behind what they're doing is precisely right. And so it's working really well for them. As far as, as for, from an outsider's perspective, looking into their community, I'm super impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and their main principles are, first of all, um, we don't want any poor. So if we've got somebody who's struggling, we, they don't just say, okay, how much money a month do you need and give them a check, right? Right. They say, and, and I don't know the, all the workings of it, but I kind of gather, they sit down with an individual and say, you know, what's the hang up for your business? How, how can we help you be more successful so you don't need our money? You know, mm-hmm. how can, because nobody, don't, you know, nobody wants to get a handout anyways, if they're really oh. trying to live the possible. You, most people... You know, I'm always appreciative if I get it, but I feel ashamed, right? Right. And I think most people are like that um, in the gospel. They don't. They don't just want to check every month and be emasculated. They want somebody to to say, "Well, I just need this equipment, or I need this." And so then they work in, and they find some resources and they help them with what they need to get them on their feet, so they're not poor anymore. And gotcha. then, and then everybody's got everybody benefits now because the 4,000 a month that was going towards that poor person is now not needed 
and can go somewhere else. And that poor person's generating money and giving somebody else. And, you know, the idea of what is, what is poverty keeps becoming an increased bar. <laughs> you know, it might have used to been somebody makes 20,000 a year. Now it's 50,000. Who knows? You know? So I thought that's, that's, that, that being their first primary principle is precisely the feeling the the very first verses that I read to you, it's like, if you're giving to the poor, you're giving it to me, you know, take care of the poor. That's what the purpose of this is for. And so, you know, whether or not they're following all the technical guidelines, the purpose is exactly what God's trying to do. So that's their first thing. And, oh, go God. sorry. I, I was going to say, it, it, it's fascinating to hear that account because as you talk about consecration, you get one of two answers. The one answer is, well, we'll all just be poor together. And so we won't realize we're poor. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then there is, and, and I don't ascribe to that. Right. I don't think that's what the Lord's intent was. I think the Lord's intent was when he said there'd be no poor among us. I don't think he's saying, I'll just make all your situations miserable. And uh, you'll have no reference. Right. He promises they'll be the wealthiest of all communities. Yes. If if you look at what the Lord's saying, he's like, do you really want to want to live this order? Buckle up because you're, you will all um, succeed. You will all go forward, but you got to live by these principles. So I appreciate what, what you point out there that, that this isn't, an idea of, well, we'll just all be poor together. We'll 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 all live in hovels, and no one will be able to tell yeah. who's rich and who's poor, and because we'll all be poor. Um, yeah, it's such I, a faithless view of consecration. <laughs> well, it, and I'm then, not saying it's not common or not uncommon. I'm just saying it's a well, faithless version of it. But but I think this feeds a, a larger narrative, Drew, and it's yeah. something that I've seen creep out of BYU more and more is this idea that consecration was nothing more than socialism with a religious bent. Yes. Yeah. And, and I've been one to, that said, I don't think that's it. Right. And, and as I dive in and I read 42, the Lord is talking about, you know, the Harbor raising all ships, right? This isn't just, again, we're all going to be poor together. This is about no, Together, we will all succeed and we will all rise. And I find it fascinating that that the history bears this out as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I, as, the, as the brethren are talking, too, they're like, if we will do this, we will be one of the wealthiest communities there is. Right. And yeah. to me, that's one of the reasons why I was interested to talk to Centennial Park. Because if you drive around their community, I've driven around a lot of fundamentalist communities. And frankly, they, uh, on, a, on a picturesque level, they, uh, on driving by the community, I mean, you know, I, I realize that's a very superficial thing, but they look like they're doing a dang good job compared to everybody else. I've been through several United Order areas and you got junk trailers and junk cars and things piled up on the side and things aren't kempt and you, you know it looks like white trash and i commend them for tr trying to do their best and try and build up and stuff and sometimes you got to start from somewhere you know and sometimes that's all it is is people are just barely starting out and 
you know, they're just, they're trying and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you see a community where everybody's ostensibly, apparently everybody's wealthy and they're living united order, you say, you know, that looks an awful lot like the fruit that God promised if you're doing it right, you know? So <laughs> that's what, that's what really got my attention talking to them and, and has, has had my interest from a historian's perspective and a doctrinal perspective is whatever their feelings are. And I don't know, I, I don't, I, I don't know what all their doctrines are, you know, all this sort of stuff that they, they've got good fruit on their consecration. Right. And I've met a lot of really good people there too. Um, and, and so I have to look at that and say, it looks like they're doing something right. And what I perceive it, that they're doing right is precisely what I was perceiving from the early brethren's discourses is saying, look, um, you need to understand the principles behind this to live it right. If not, you're just going to be upset and stuck in your traditions and, you know, worried with the scarcity mentality. What's the bishop going to do with all my extra money I gave him? Right. And if you have that attitude, you're not going to make it. You have to understand everything's God's. You have to understand that everybody's attitude in the order is to build God's kingdom. And you're working together to, to maximize that effort. The farmer isn't going to bring up as much cash to give to the bishop at the end of the year, no matter what you give him. He's not going to produce as much of a cash surplus as the industrial guy is going to do or the banker, you know? Right. And so you give the most money to the banker. You give the most money to the industrial guy who owns a, you know, big company who's going to buy a new machine that's going to create a lot more jobs and, and ultimately bring a lot more money into the community. You know, and if you look at it like we're all building together, he's going to pay 100000 toward the new church, and I'm going to put 2000 towards in our church. But we're both going to worship there, and we're both going to learn there, and, you know, we're both going to benefit from there. And with, if everybody's got that attitude that we're working together to build a community and to build Zion, that's when you can actually make it happen. And then also, you know, the point of this is what you're doing to others, you're doing to God. So take care of the poor and the widows and the orphans first and you know do that so on that level on just the principle level of what the brethren were preaching is this is the whole point that's what centennial parts doing right interesting now, i wanted to be a cynic and be a jerk probably and say well you're computing your tithing wrong you're computing your consecration wrong you're you know you're you're focusing on these things that aren't even in the doctrine and covenants you know, if I wanted to poke and be critical about it, I could find things to tell them they're not doing right. But at the end of the day, what they are doing so well is what the brethren were saying. This is what the consecration is trying to get you to do. Right. It's trying to teach you these principles. And it's the same thing like the letter to Edward Partridge, um, where he's describing how to calculate tithing. It's such a small number compared to what everybody teaches you to pay tithing. Right. And when I was looking at it saying, well, what's going on here? I'm, I'm, what, this is what I'm seeing. Tithing is a baby doctrine for consecration. What's it trying to do? It's trying to teach you to get ready for consecration. Well, what's consecration trying to give you to do? And Heber C. Kimball described it like this, trying to get you to learn to love your neighbor more than yourself. It's trying to get you to learn to love to give and to find joy, compersion, 
in the joy and success of others instead right. of just your own success, your own success. And that's what it's trying to do. And that's all tithing is. Right. You know, it's supposed to take care of the poor. Frankly, if you calculate it right, it's not going to take care of the poor. You know, you're going to need more than that. But it's it's trying, it's a stepping stone to get you to feel good about it, you know? Right. And yeah. And, I, and so go ahead. Sorry. No, go and ahead. So that's what I see with the that's what I see with consecration that is the principles behind it. That's what that community is getting right. And that's what the early brethren were teaching about DNC 42. Whether they know that or not, you know, right. You know, that's because they've got good hearts and they're trying to take care of each other or whatever their attitude is, they get it. And so even if they're not doing things right, they're being prospered because the principles they're applying are right. And that's what the early saints were not getting. They weren't understanding the principles. And that's what, that's, that's what the changes we read in the DNC 42 are aimed at is teaching the principles. And that's what the, all the discourses about DNC 42 were about. Because the brethren saying, guys, you know, you're quibbling over all these details, but it's the principles that you're missing. <laughs> you know? Right. Quit right. worrying about what the bishop's spending the money on. He's just trying to build the kingdom. You know, that's what everybody's doing. And, well, and I, I think <clears throat> I think to get to that point to where you would trust, and 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 this is, I'll be honest, this is part of the this is part of the hard part about it, right? Is that you have to have, if, if you're going to live consecration, you have to have, you have to be very comfortable with the organization that you're part of, right? That yeah. there's no corruption, that everybody is on the up and up and doing the best they can. Um, And, and I think that is... <clears throat> is is the hard thing with that there is is trying to find that organization right yeah and then being able to say okay you have one bad actor but he's just one bad actor and they removed him or whatever and then have that kind of nuance as well but i think something else and 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 you you've gone back to this a couple of times and and i really like what you say there that that at at some point it's about understanding the principle right of of what it is we're doing um i i looked for a lot of years for a church after my old man died want to get more out of listening to the mormon renegade podcast then go to the mormon renegade patreon page or click the link in this episode's show notes for access to one of three packages for three dollars a month slightly rowdy option will give you access to ad-free audio still not enough then for $6 a month, sign up for the String It Up option, which gives you ad-free audio and video as well as transcripts. Finally, for those who really want to get crazy, sign up for the $12 a month full Renegade option, which will give everything in the previous two plans plus access to a weekly news program, which will break down the news of the day from a Mormon point of view as well as access to a community page, where you can talk about all things Mormon in private. Go to the Mormon Renegade Patreon page or click the link in this episode's show notes and sign up today. And um, I think I probably would have drove those early brethren in the church nuts because I know I drove some of my leaders in the LDS church nuts because I kept asking the question, why, why, why? Explain this. Um, I remember I had a girlfriend in high school who was like, you should come check out my church. 
and uh, she was Catholic. And so I kept asking why. And I remember I got told, you're not interested in learning. You're interested in picking this apart. And I'm like, well, if it's God, I think I should be a little choosy, right? I mean, I think I, I should have this kind of figured out. But those principles, right? It, it And you pointed this out earlier, it was about trying to, you know, consecration was still a stepping stone to that, that city of Enoch that people were trying to do that community, that yeah. society. Um, and I think Heber C. Kimball spelled that out. Well, if you want, you want Enoch city, you want to be those people. Well, this is what you got to do. You got to love your neighbor at least as much as yourself, if not more. And the, we we can talk about rules, regulations, programs, covenants, conditions, restrictions, all those things all day long. But if we don't grasp the principle behind it, good luck. Good luck. Nobody was ever won over by a program or a rule. And if they were, they didn't last very long because at some point, every program and every rule loses its varnish, right? It, yeah. It, it always becomes at some point somewhat burdensome unless you understand the principle behind it. Do you think that's what the early saints really struggled with more than anything else was getting the principle? Or do you think there was other stuff there at work with it? Yeah, I don't think they, they got the principle at all. Right. There, there was, um, you know, there, there was a core group of half dozen families that were interested in, uh, I want to say morally or Campbell's, but now I forgot, but, I should just know off the top of my head, but my my brain's already on a different project. Um, the they they had been interested in in a, a, a kind of a communal group called the family that was started, and uh, they were asking Joseph about it, and so he that's when he got the revelation about it. So some people were very interested in the idea of consecration, and you know well, they, I'm sure they gave it a different name. And they wanted to know more about it, but most of the saints were clueless. They had no idea. And then you've got, of course, immigrants coming from across the, the globe coming in and, and converting, and they had no concept or idea of what it was. And then you've got all these different cultural traditions of who takes care of a family and how's it supposed to be done. And they all have to upend that and do something completely different with you know the way the, the revelation comes out. It was just... It was they just didn't get it, and frankly, I don't think the concepts were outlined that much in the original version. And I, I haven't compared to see what the 1844 version that is the subject of my book, how that compares to the modern DNC. Um, I've done that with other sections and seen changes and stuff, but I, I just I don't care anymore. I just want to know what the early brethren were teaching. So that's as a historian, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I look at. But yeah, it, it appears to me they just didn't get the principles, and the brethren said that multiple times and said, "So let's let me drill this point into your head so that you can understand the principles." Um, but you know, there's a lot of changes constantly going on. They're getting kicked out of Missouri. They're getting kicked out of Nauvoo. They're going across this country. They're getting threatened with, you know, Johnston's army, and they've got Indian problems, and you know people again immigrating from all over the world by the thousands and trying to learn basic principles and then add to that consecration and temple building it, 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 there's just a lot to learn 
Right. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of amazed working on this particular project, um, the DNC annotated project, because um, I've been, I've been studying now um, very heavily um, nearly 20 years. Um, and it put out like, I don't know, 12, 13 books or something like that, whatever the, whatever it is now. Um, and uh, I'm still learning tons, you know? Right. And, and I'm constantly running across new things that I haven't seen before. And, um, you know, somebody from Centennial Park said, well, have you seen the quotes by Joseph that, you, you know, he, he wouldn't even do a United Order organization anymore. And I was like, no, I haven't seen those. So I said, well, it's a Lyndon Cook's book, um, Joseph Smith and the Law of Consecration. So I ordered it, just showed up today, and I already found those quotes and looked at them. And that's not quite how I read it, you know? Right. He said, while we're in poverty in Nauvoo, we're not going to try and live consecration as outlined in 42 because we're all poor. <laughs> and, Interesting. And it, we can't live that law. We don't have the wealthy to take you know, to start it off. And we've got to have a certain degree of wealth to get that going. Um, uh, at any rate, and also, you know, at that point, um, uh, another one of the quotes, and I, I haven't fully delved into this, so I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't want to represent the entire book because um, I haven't read it yet. But he's, he basically says, we need saints that have already covenanted in the temple and who understand what it means. That's your foundation to starting a United Order. Interesting. Which is, you know, that's interesting all by itself. But, you know, from experience, um, you, you, you have a United Order and you get in generations two, three, four, and you have kids growing up who aren't endowed, but whose parents have been in the United Order. They want to join the order too, you know, but nobody says we have to be endowed first. <laughs> you just kind of let you start, you know, Join and get endowed when you get endowed, you know. And some order, some groups don't have the endowment, and so that's not a starting point for them either. No, so that's fascinating that Joseph kind of put put a, a few litmus tests, I guess, if you will, on on living the law of con, uh, living united order. Right, this idea of well, you can't start out with nothing and put it yeah. together, um, and then also go to the temple first. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that, I thought that was very significant. And, you know, um, when Joseph Smith originally learned about the law of tithing, he, he said, and I don't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, Lord, I covenant to live this law as soon as I get out of debt. Um, and the reason he said that is because you can't pay on surplus if you're in debt, because the, by definition of debt is you have no surplus. Right. You have a deficit instead of a surplus. You can't pay tithing. Well, now we've got all sorts of problems. Well, what about borrowing for leveraging and you know all this sort of thing? Um, that's is that really debt or is that an asset that you're really <laughs> calling debt? Excuse me. Um, you know, I mean. We, modern society's got a lot of little tricks like that they didn't have in Joseph's day, but he understood the idea that you can't pay on a surplus if you don't have one. So he says, as, as soon as I get one, I will do that, but I don't have one yet, so I can't do it. And well, so I in Nauvoo, think... he's looking at a higher law that's kind of like tithing that requires everybody have a surplus in the first place and says, 
none of us have a surplus. Mm-hmm. How do you even consecrate if you don't have a surplus? That's the whole point is you give your surplus, you know? Well, I think that's interesting too, right? Because for for some of my um, mainstream LDS uh, audience, they're not, that's something that, that you have to look that, that, let me phrase that. That's some doctrine that's buried deep. This idea that you play tithing on your surplus, not yeah. just wholesale. Right. Um, right. And, and that, that can blows blow people's minds. And the fact Joseph said, you know, makes that covenant as soon as I'm out of debt shows that there's some sort of order to all this. Right. Um, so often I think people have, conceptions of what they think tithing uh, consecration was and, and united order which was well you just showed up and you just you you gave everything to the bishop and then you got a little bit back and yeah. you know you, you you pay your tithing uh no matter if you're making money or not because you gotta you gotta pay it right you gotta you gotta be able to to be worthy to see your son get sealed to his wife or you know baptize your kids or something like that right it it very much is kind of an entry fee so to speak yeah when when joseph talks about tithing it's a different picture and i think it's even a different picture within 42 i i think it's in 42 you could tell me if i'm wrong or not where it talks about consecrating your 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 surplus right yeah well technically and i i kind of misspoke on that in 42, it does say you give everything to the bishop, and he yes. gives you what you need for your support back as a steward. In, in pragmatics, you know, that basically means you're giving your surplus, you know, because you're getting everything you need back. And nobody's going to take your fork and your razor and, you know, your, your right. you know, your stuff that everybody's got. They, they want to look at what you have above and beyond what everybody else has to see what's usable for something outside your home. Because if I gave my stove to the bishop, I don't have one. It's right. not, you know, I'm going to now be the poor, and we're trying to get rid of the poor. Right. So, but later editions of the doc, or sorry, later sections of the doctrine and covenants made it that you only consecrated your surplus. Um, and you know, Joseph speaking later Nauvoo, that's what you know he was speaking toward. Is, so he, you know, go ahead. Sorry. Um. So, so to be clear, technically you gave everything in DNC 42 and you received what you needed back. And if you had a disagreement, then you go to high council or something. And Joseph specifically said, it's not just the bishop's decision, but it's not just the steward's decision either. You know, they come to an agreement and if they can't, then they have a mediator. But later it addended that to say, okay, don't give everything because people are stressed that they're going to get kicked out of the order and they go apostate, then they're not going to have a house. They're not going to have cattle. They're not going to have anything, right? And that, that's what they were worried about. So they didn't want to do the United Order at all. Um, so they said, okay, just give your surplus. And frankly, that's really the principle behind it anyways. You determine what your surplus is, and then you give that or most of that to the bishop. Um, and Joseph's looking at it, recognizing you're, you're in a standstill. If nobody has a surplus, we've got nowhere to start. Right. You can you can band together like and this is really common with Mexican families. Um, you know, they come across the border and, and I've, I've met a number of families like this. And each month they get together. And frankly, the Rocky Ridge order started this way, too. 
they get together and at the end of the month they say okay how much money do we have you know and everybody throws their whole paycheck in cash on the table is it who needs what and then everybody just kind of says well i need this much and if they've got enough everybody divvies it out and usually there's a deficit and somebody says well i can hold off on the daughter's dentist till next month you know and then they separate their ways well that's consecrated at heart but it doesn't get you very far out of poverty um, right. until somebody's really got a surplus. And I think right. by the time Joseph was making these comments in Nauvoo, he recognized if you don't have a surplus, um, you know, you're just doing like those groups of Mexicans and, and it's usually extended family. It's not like there's any hard feelings or anything, but they're just kind of, I'm giving you everything. Right. And who needs it the worst? They get it first and, and we'll, we'll all suffer for whoever needs it the worst if necessary. And if that's so-and-so's immigration fees, you know, so they can get an attorney so they don't get deported, then that's the most pressing issue. That's what we pay for. Right. And we'll all work overtime and make it happen. And, but that's not prospering. That's right. just scraping by. And, and that's why I think Joseph said, as long as we're poor, we're not going to try and organize anything. It's not worth it. Let me ask you so that. Part like that. That recognition that Joseph had that, that, Hey, we, you know, it, it's on, you know, your surplus, right? Do you feel like that that is kind of the, the way it was supposed to be lived? Or do you feel like that that's like taking a step back, maybe like with the children of Israel, not receiving all the covenants, just receiving a portion? Yeah. Um, kind of both. Okay. So, Here's, here's how I see, and, and this is where I, I, I take a step further back from all of this and say, why did God set up the consecration like he did in 42? Right. Why not just say, determine what your surplus is and give that to the bishop? That's what he did later, but he didn't. Why? What principle was he trying to teach in 42 that we don't get if we just look at our surplus? And I think... That, that principle, as I see it in the early brother talked about, I've already alluded to, but it's all things are God's. If you give only your surplus, you say, I calculate my surplus, now I'm going to give some of that. Okay, that's a good step. That's beyond tithing. That's good. But what do you? Th what's your mindset? Your mindset is, this is my stuff, and this is what I don't need that I bring in as my income, that I've earned, this is what I'm creating for somebody else or for the, for the order or whatever, but I created this and, and now you can have it. Well, that, that can be a giving heart. That can be a good thing, but it's not understanding the principle that everything is God. It's not saying God gave to me the talent to make this money. God gave me the resources to make this money. Frick, God made me healthy so that I can make this money. Right. You know, he didn't allow all these disasters these other people are having into my life so that I would be poor or crippled or unable to make this money. They're not recognizing all of these things or, or they're able to not see those principles with the later version of, of consecration. So I see DNC 42 as God saying, I'm trying to teach you this principle and the net result is the same as what I teach later in, you know, in the later versions of the Doctrine of Covenants. Consecrate just your surplus. 
you know, that all shows up. It, the, the net result is the same, you know. Gotcha. If I say give everything to Bishop, he gives me everything I need back, and the surplus is what he keeps versus I we determine what surplus is, then I give him the surplus. The end result is the same amount. Gotcha. But what's different is my understanding of what I'm doing. With one understanding, I'm saying everything's God's. I'm just giving it back to him, and I'm saying steward over what I need. The other attitude is saying I created a surplus because I'm a good guy, pat myself on the back, and I'm I'm you know talented or I'm awesome because I can make a lot of money or whatever, and I'm giving my surplus to other people who aren't as good as me. Gotcha. And I'm not saying that's what everybody's attitude would be, but you can have no. that attitude. And so that's why I see God revealing DNC 42 as is. And then later changes as things go on. He's, he's just saying, okay, you didn't understand the principles behind here. So let's get to the nitty gritty because that's what you're so worried about. What percentage of my surplus do I give for, for consecration? That's what you want to know. So let me help you with that. And, and then after you do that for a while, you'll get the spirit of it. You'll say, oh, this is what it's really about. Give all of my time, I talent, see. and effort. I see. Okay. No, that makes sense. Same thing as tithing. It's a small amount to encourage you to say, I felt really good when I gave that money to the beggar. I felt really good. Brother so-and-so just had an accident. He's been really poor this month. We brought him over this big meal and a couple coats for the kids because winter just started. His kids grew out of last year's. It felt so good to be able to co-give to them and help them out, you know? And then you want to do it again, you know? Um, I know I had a, I had some experiences like that early in the church. I grew up pagan. I didn't know anything about these things. And, and uh, I, I remember a couple times being able to to help other families out and, and doing a, a secret Santa's type stuff, you know? And, and just seeing somebody who's really struggling just beam because they got help, you know? And you just feel so good. You're just like, wow, I want to do that again. Yeah, that's to me what tithing is about, and 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 same thing with the modified versions of consecration. He's saying, okay, it, it, maybe you don't understand the principle. Let me let me give you kind of uh, a Kickstarter here. <laughs> let right. me give you something to spark that understanding in yourself, and and maybe you don't get a full understanding of it, but at least you're on the right track. Right. That's how I see the amendations to the to the DNC that that show up later. And, and when Brigham Young, um, and I think it's John, um, John Timson in Centennial Park come along and say, what are you guys willing to do? <laughs> you know, this is what we're supposed to do. But what are, you, what are you really willing to do? Because at the end of the day, that's better than doing nothing. Right. It's at least stepping stone. And. And, you know, I, to me, and, and I said to the middle, and then when he told me that was his stance, I'm like, that's genius. Right. Because I don't think like that. And, and, and this is where I, I, I have a really strong weakness this way. Rosa Smith said two things and they're heavily impactful on me. And I, and I forget to step outside of them sometimes. The one is he said, I will stand by true principle, even if I'm the only one. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one, he said, is I've made this my rule when God commands I do it. Well, those two statements, those two attitudes are not compatible with what are you willing to do? 
Right. That's not what God's asking you to do. Like, what are you willing to do? You know, and, and uh, I think it's in TPGS 149, 150, um, where Joseph says, when is a man um, in his conduct sure? He says, when a man proves to God that he's willing to obey, regardless of the consequences, then he will have his calling election mature. So the attitude again is God commands, I do it. It's not, well, God commands, and well, I'm, this is what I'm willing to do. Right. That's not part of the equation. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's a different attitude that's required there. And, and so I don't get past that. I was on my mission one time and I was interviewing for baptism, uh, a, a, a Russian wasn't exactly a family. It was kind of family and friends. And uh, I was, uh, they were really poor. And, and as I looked at their situation, I didn't want to talk to them about tithing. Yeah. I, I, I was just like, you, you guys need help. We, we shouldn't be asking for your money. Um, which at the time I didn't realize is correct principle. <laughs> it's just how I felt about it, you know? So I asked them what they understood about tithing. And then it comes to, you know, the thousand dollar question, are you willing to pay it? Will you come to do this if you're going to get baptized, right? It's a prerequisite. And two, I think, out of, of, of the three family heads that I spoke to said, uh, I said, well, how do you feel about paying tithing? Um, and one of them basically said, I don't like it. It's not enough. Wow. And he said, God gives us everything. We have our freedom. We have our health. We have all of these things. I've got my beautiful family, and I have all to give him back ten percent is nothing. And I'm, I'm a missionary, and I'm like completely humbled by his attitude. It's way better than mine is, you know. Right. <laughs> my attitude is a is a eighteen year old boy joining the church was see see whether or not I will not open the windows of heaven for you if you pay your tithing, you know? And I paid my tithing for the first time because they said, just test him. I'm like, oh, broke, man. And, and I did. I got this huge scholarship to college. Like, boom, right away. And way better than I expected. And I was like, there you go. See, prove me now here with whether or not I will open up the windows of heaven and pour down blessings upon you, you know? It's like, okay, that's my attitude. That's how I learned. And he's saying, it's nothing. How could, why even make a rule of 10? That's just like baby doctrine, man. You got to understand God gives you everything. And, and uh, anyway, that attitude is, is what I see germane in, in the original section and in what the early brethren are teaching, complaining the saints aren't getting it. They're saying, this is what you don't understand. And here it is, King Benjamin right at the very beginning you know you're you're unprofitable servants even the air you have is borrowed everything that's made of the earth everything that you have in front of you is god's you're just a freaking steward you're borrowing it and when you die it goes back to him you know right get rid of all your pride who do you think you are man you got caught up in the world thinking you're some awesome something or other and get over it you're not that awesome you know, right. And at any rate, that's that's what I see over and over and over. And in, in, in each change, in each page, I just see that kind of a message coming from the brethren, saying, "Okay, this is the 
the pinnacle of discipleship. After, after plural marriage, consecration, that's, that's the pinnacle of discipleship. When are you willing to say, I'm not, I don't have a duty just to myself. Mm-hmm. I don't have a duty just to take care of my children. I have a duty to take care of any of my brothers and sisters who need help. And it's not a, it's, oh, good for you. You know, good boy, man, you're just, what a kind, charitable person you are. No, that's my duty. That's something I'm supposed to do because I'm supposed to adopt the principle of understanding to love your neighbor as yourself. And would I allow my neighbor to be cold in the winter? You know, would I allow myself to be cold in the middle of winter? You know, no. So why are you letting this brother live that way? Because he's poor. Or he brought it upon himself. No, let's, let's not think that way. You know, and, right. and as soon as we get rid of all this pride and we start thinking this way, we receive it as a duty and not just as a good job. I'm, I'm awesome. You know, let's name the foundation after me because I gave all the money. Let's, you know, write down on the Burger King thing that I, I donated money to this cause and put it on the wall, you know, right. so everybody donated some money. Get over yourself and just do it because you love them. You know, it's the same attitude as, as the Savior. He doesn't get anything out of the deal of, of the atonement. Right. He doesn't, you know, I mean, maybe he gets more glory. But, you know, really, what does he get out of it? He's not alone in heaven. That's what he gets out of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's it's all for us. You know? I mean, it's, unless you just want to say he's selfish because he doesn't want to be lonely. You know? But the, the whole gospel program is let me lift you all up to be where I'm at. And let me help you to achieve what I've achieved. Let me bring you. God says, I will make you join heirs. I'm going to give you everything I've got. The whole gospel program is to bless everybody with the blessings you have and, and increase that and enlarge that as much as possible. And if you have that attitude, then you look at consecration, you're like, well, that's just the whole point of the gospel. It's right. just to, to bring everybody up to the same level and to keep, continue to do that. It's the opposite of crabs in the bucket, right? Absolutely. You pull each other out of the bucket instead of keeping each other in the bucket. Absolutely. Yep. 100%. Let me ask you this question. We we kind of started here reading Orson Pratt. And Orson makes the statement that that uh the Lord rescinded so to speak. Yeah. Con- living united order. Do you think that's Yeah, he revoked this. Revoked. Thank yeah. you. Do you think that that's correct? What he said there? Um, sort of. You know, I look at it like this because that's a dangerous um, precedent. Talk- if that's correct, right? Right, right. Well, and and I think and, and there's no revelation saying I revoke this law. So right. I I think Mr. Pratt's extrapolating a little bit. And frankly, he he was pretty firm about rebuking the saints for not living it and saying we need to get back to it. But I think his point is correct, and in in a so this is this is kind of how I see this, and I, we talked about this in a previous podcast. But God gives the Old Testament law in, in Deuteronomy ten, Joseph Smith translation. Moses comes down from the mountain with fullness of the gospel, sees people worshiping gold calves, breaks the fullness of the gospel tablets, comes back with ten commandments. Well, that sucks. 
the the Ten Commandments are a pretty chintzy version of the gospel. Um, you can you can laud them and say, well, you know, the, the, if you take the principles behind them, it expands the whole gospel. You know, love your neighbors yourself is a lot better thing than saying don't don't worship idols. You know, I mean, there's just there are different levels of the gospel, and they were cursed. That's what God says. You know, that was a curse. Joseph said that was a cursing to those people to have a lesser law. Right. But at the same time, if God would have given them the fullness of the gospel while they are worshiping a golden idol, they would have all been in condemnation for all the new light knowledge they had and were not willing to live. So this, this is what I see in the Doctrine of Covenants is God saying, okay, I gave you the fullness. That's what this dispensation is about. It's about the fullness of the gospel. But now that I've given you the fullness and you see that you're not willing to live it, let me give you a, a, a pacifier and make it a little bit easier for you to swallow and a little bit easier for you to understand and a little bit of a lesser law, but it's not too much of a downgrade. You know, let me give you something else that you can do so that you're not under condemnation for not living everything. You're doing your best. And then he says, oh, you weren't willing to do that either. Let's do it again. And then ultimately, here's tithing. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, and to be to be fair, and um, I think tithing is an important principle at some level. I make the argument for it. But at the end of the day, I don't like tithing because tithing to me represents the baby version of what you do if you're not willing to live the fullness of the gospel. It's being a Christian instead of being a Mormon. It's being a Muslim instead of being a Christian. It's a lesser law. Okay. And I don't want to live the lesser law. I want to live the higher law. And if I'm screwing up and falling and skinning my knees all the day long, that's okay with me as long as I know I'm trying to live the fullness. And if I'm doing something less, then I'm just disappointed with myself. Um, so I just got lost somewhere in... <laughs> in the quest and i apologize no no but, um, do, do you feel like like the commandment to, to live united order still still in force i don't i don't think it was revoked um but um i i, I appreciate per orson's perspective and i see it more like this god took consecration from the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and he gave it to the church of the firstborn if okay. you're endowed now you have the consecration upon you. You've taken a covenant to live it, live it. It's expected of you. But if you haven't been to the temple, then tithing is what is expected of you in the Doctrine and Covenants. I, and, I would and that seems I would, to me yeah. what the early brethren taught. That no, you don't have to live consecration, just live tithing. It's okay. Um, oh, now you've been through the temple. Well, we don't have a formal way of living consecration. Just do your best, you know, and that sounds nice, but nobody really does it without a structure, you know. Right. I, I was in the church for a good dozen years and uh, or more. I don't really remember. I'd have to go back and think about it. But, um, you know, I've, there's a lot of amazing people in the church. But to say that you're consecrated, give all of your surplus or 80% of your surplus or whatever, you're focusing all of your extra effort to make your brother as yourself. 
there's too way too much wealth disparity to even begin to make that argument in the church. Right. You know, individuals sometimes, rarely, you know, most of the individuals in the church that I met who were more consecrated than anybody else were frankly just wealthy and they still had way more surplus that they could have done more with. Right. Um, and that's, that's not ripping on them saying they're bad people. I benefited from some of those people and some of those were really good friends of mine. Um, but it's, that's different than say their living consecration is outlined in the DNC. Right. You know, even without a formal organization, to have the attitude, everything's God's. I make 4,000 surplus a month or 10,000 surplus a month. Are you giving 10,000 surplus a month? Are you using that surplus to make an even greater surplus, giving a huge portion of that to, to poor people every month or to a, you know, building the kingdom somehow? Or do you have 100,000 in your 401k? Do you have a three quarter million dollar house? Nobody needs a three-quarter million dollar house. I've lived in one before. It's really, really nice. But you don't need that, you know. Right. So, you know, that's that's a very, very different question. And it seems to be kind of what I'm seeing with Joseph Smith, too, with those quotes I was alluding to earlier, and I haven't fully investigated the depth of them and checked around the original sources and that sort of stuff to get context. But she seems to be saying, um, you know, you can, you committed consecration in the temple. You're on your own, figured out. Well, that, okay, but how do I figure it out? I have to go back to doctrine covenants, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the revelation, right? Um, but it's also kind of like you know the 1886 revelation on plural marriage, where it says I'm, I'm taking away that burden from the church, and now it's on the individual. It's the same kind of attitude. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the best. That's just pragmatics of how things are working. Right. Saints aren't willing to live consecration. So the three of you who want to live it, good luck. You have my blessing. <laughs> right. Do whatever you want, and I will be proud of you. <laughs> yeah. Because it's better than what everybody else is doing. Gotcha. But... <laughs> gotcha. No, that makes sense. Well, dude, that was good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I've really been excited. I'm working on this project. I never thought I would be learning so much. That's awesome. Um, you, you were saying earlier that you know is 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 are the changes of the revelation. Joseph expressing himself, or you know, learning to express himself better. DNC seventy six is even more like that because we've got the poetic version. Right. We write seventy six and says this is what it means. You know. <laughs> And, and gosh, it's such a blessing to have that. Yeah. And, and that's why I started going to find all the commentary of the brethren about the Doctrine and Covenants is because they're saying, this is what Joseph meant. Or Joseph talked to me about this principle and this is what he said. And so I understand this DNC verse differently because of what he taught me. And, you know, you get all these gems and it just completely expands your understanding of what was going yeah. on. Um, I was totally sold on this historian's perspective that consecration was just, everybody's just giving it a shot, trying and it didn't work out. So we gave it up. Right. You know? I, I mean, I wasn't hundred percent sold on that, but it looked like there's a lot of evidence that way. Um, a lot of humanity behind those efforts. <laughs> right. And 
how else do you interpret it? But now that I've read what their commentary is, I see the humanity behind it was them saying, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do, brother. I'm not going to tell you the Doctrine and Covenants says to do it this way, and the bishop says this. I'm coming to you and saying, what are you willing to do? Right. And I'm going to get a group of people together, and whatever they're willing to do, we use that as a stepping stone. That's yeah. that's what they were teaching. And now that's that's my perspective. That's what the humanity is. And and I think it's a significant difference because now the humanity is not on the prophet. Now the humanity is on people. Absolutely. And, and uh, I think that's an important distinction. It's something to be aware of. You know? Yeah. Let me ask this last question before I leave, because I, I I'm going to go back to this because I find it disturbing what I'm seeing. And I, you're, you're, you're a real intelligent guy. You're well-read. You're, you're, you're an author. Explain to people how consecration and united order is different than socialism. Um, I, I think the pat answer is a good one. Um, I think the pat answer is one's voluntary and one's not. But um, I, I think the real thing is socialism is an administrative form of government and economics. The United Order is an effort to teach people principles to make them closer to God. And that's a fundamental difference. And, and if you, you know, for anybody listening, what I've, what I've been trying to express when I asked the question, why did God reveal DNC 42 as is knowing we would reject it? Knowing the saints would reject revision number one, knowing the saints would reject revision number two, because he was trying to teach them principles first. And when they rejected the principle, he gave them more administrative direction to try and give them something you could do with your hands and, and with your body to make a difference in, in, in how you're living the gospel, to give you a kickstart to learning those principles. Um, the, the, one of the things that is not taught very well in the church and almost it's actually had some opposition by some some of the brethren about 50 60 years ago and isn't very well taught in a lot of fundamentalism is the purpose of the gospel is to learn truth receive it and then live it the early brethren taught that a lot i even even found some quotes from joseph smith that weren't published very well um, and some of them hard really hard to find saying you know knowledge is the power of salvation. You know, you're learning principles and the more principles that you learn, the more you become like God and you find the joy and blessing in it. DNC 130 verse 20 says, um, you know, that's the famous, every, every blessing is predicated upon keeping a commandment. So why do we have the commandments? They're to teach us principles that when we live by them, bring us blessings. And so, the purpose of consecration is to teach us to love our neighbor as ourselves or more than ourselves or whatever, and to acknowledge that all things are God. And it's we can give that lip service. And that's another thing that Orson, Quatt, Orson Pratt noted. 
he said what DNC 42 did is he taught the people that they said that they were willing to do stuff. But what they found out is their lips believed it, but their hearts did not. Mm. And, and so it's really easy to say, well, love others is yourself. Okay. I can, I can do that. It's, you know, you should recognize all things come from, okay, I can do that. All right. So um, you, you make $1,700 extra a month that you don't really need for food or clothing or anything. What are you doing with it? Well, I just keep it in my bank and, and, you know, sometimes we go on vacations and, you know, we do all these nice things say, well, your brother, so-and-so down, I, I don't care what ward branch, I don't care what part of the restoration you're at. You know, somebody who's not as well off as you, are you actively trying to make that person's life as good as yours? Cause if you're not, you don't really, your lips believe, but your heart doesn't. Because if your heart really believed you would be trying to make sure that every, that there was no poor among you. And, and you would be trying to do that because you know, that's true principle and you love them. Right. And that's, that's really what I see with consecration. It's, it's not the administrative forms of it are, are there to kickstart us. And, and that's where I see, that's what I was getting at earlier. That's where I think Centennial Park really nails it. Um, maybe they're not getting the administrative details correctly. And, and I can make a very strong argument they're not. If you believe Joseph's the prophet, they are not. But they got the principle behind it well, and they got it right. And that's, to me, that's why they're succeeding. Because right. they learned a lesson, even if they didn't learn, you know, the, the, you know maybe they took a, a path that was wavy back and forth on you know on the way upward instead of a straight line but they're still getting they're, they're moving the general right direction and of course correcting right. as they move on and their hearts are right and that's the big difference to me between consecration and socialism socialism doesn't care about principle they don't care about where your heart is they don't care about what you're learning they don't care if you understand that god is the owner of everything they don't they don't care about any of those things but that's the whole point of consecration at the end of the day, God doesn't care if you've got two houses or three. He doesn't care if you've got four cars or a beater. He doesn't care about a lot of these details so long as there's no poor among you, so long as people aren't suffering below you, and so long as you're willing to give to somebody who needs it. Right. Um, that's, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, at Rocky Ridge, I had a friend. And uh, one of the one of the founders there, and his daughter came to him once, and he bought her a car for her birthday. And she came to him, and she said, "Dad, I feel really guilty. Have this car because, you know, I know that there are families um, that don't have as nice of a car as I have, you know." And and uh, he said, "Well, let me ask you a question. If one of these families had no car and really needed one, would you give it to them?" And she said, well, sure. And he said, then it's a righteous want. Um, and, and to me, that's, that, that's the attitude. You know, okay, people, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Christian Bale drives like some nice truck. But it's not, it's a beater. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like a Lamborghini Maserati. It's not a fancy looking car. It's just, it, 
it's a, it's really what's the word? It's mechanically sound. It doesn't break down, right? Right. And this guy could buy any car he wants in the world, but he buys a nice pickup truck because he can carry stuff for people once in a while, and you know it doesn't fall apart. And and so he's got this attitude. He's not living above his neighbor, you know. And and she she's like the same thing. I have a nice car. It's not a fancy car, but it's better than what other people have. Um, is that okay? Well, who's are you living above everybody else? Christian Bale's like, no. <laughs> you know, Keanu Reeves, no. I ride the same subway as everybody else. I give people seats whenever there's an open seat. That's the attitude that, that makes the difference, you know? Right. And and that's what he was trying to teach her. And, you know, you could nitpick over details of that, that principle and how he's teaching her or whatever. But I th think for a 16-year-old girl, that's a really good explanation and understanding. Yeah. Um, and that's really what consecration is trying to teach us. And, and frankly, Latter-day Saints as a whole, we, we don't get that. I, I see pockets of it. Uh, I saw a lot of that um, in Missouri, in, in those building the temple. Those are some very consecrated men. Um, and, you know, best top-notch people in the world. Very impressed with them. It, some of the people at Rocky Ridge, you know, I've, I've seen people that could be multi-millionaires living high on the hog and they walk around like everybody else and they give all their money to the order and um, best people in the world, you know? So there, there are some out there and I'm, I'm not suggesting we're not, but as a whole, um, all the restoration movements looking at us, are we consecrated truly? Not, not even close, not even close. We have so many poor among us. Yeah. Um, and, and for what, you know? I mean, if the church can have whatever $4 billion shopping center across from the temple, um, surely, you know, I, and I read a stat once that, you know, all their extra money could buy a house for every member of the church. You know, I mean, imagine what you got rid of the mortgage payment for every member of the church, what that would look like 10 years from now, if they were consecrated and giving, even just tithing their money, right. you know, um, at any rate, they're, we're just, we're not consecrated. We're not living these laws as a whole. Um, and uh, I, I think that's really sad. We talked about it. I also get it. <laughs> you right. know, um, do I want to take my kids on vacation? Yeah. Brother so-and-so's car broke down. Do I buy him a car instead? <laughs> Dang it. We haven't been on vacation in four years, you know? Yeah. Maybe brother so-and-so's car. You know, I think... <clears throat> This is just me looking at it from a very academic point of view, having never lived fully consecrated within a community. My guess is, is that once that community is up off the ground, right, and it's raising all ships, so to speak, right, the tide raises all ships, I don't think there would be a lot of want of not being able to take your family away for a vacation for a week or whatever. Right. Right. That's and a temporary sacrifice. That's a temporary sacrifice for, for a long-term benefit. Yeah. That, that will becoming the most wealthy people on the planet. <laughs> right. I, I think those things would come in time. Um, And I, I think that's been largely because if we look through history, we have places like, 
Orderville that weren't very successful and were in some ways downright harsh. But then yeah. you got the Brigham City model that seemed to do very well for a long time. Like it could have kept going had they chose to do it sort of a thing. Yeah. And I think too often there's been a extra focus on the ones that didn't do so well. Right. Those, yeah. those yeah. cooperatives or whatever. The, the other thing I would, I would say about, about this whole thing is that, and, and I've been banging this drum for a while and I'm not, I'm not so um, dense as to understand that it may seem somewhat hypocritical, but I've said for a while, we better start figuring out how to live around each other, right? Gather yeah. like-minded people. Because yeah. if I think there's also this, this misconception of, well, when the hard times come, right? If, if you're LDS, you're like, okay, when the hard times come, we'll just all figure it out at that point. Right. <clears throat> A lot of fundamentalists have the same point of view. I tend to be the other direction, like we better figure this out now. Right. So that when it's time, we can, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like working on the play in football that you really need in the fourth quarter that you never practiced. And you're like, okay, we'll just roll out and do this. Right. And so I, I, I've, I've, I've been feeling for a while that, that while it, yes, it may be hard to gather around like-minded people and, and get this done, we better start understanding these principles very quickly. At least yeah. if we have the understanding of the principles, we have a point at which we can start from. And so in some ways, I feel like the problem we have now is almost the exact opposite of what those original saints back in the pioneer era, their problem was, right? I think if we really wanted to be educated on all the principles, well, now we don't have the federal government trying to kick us out. We don't have mobs kicking down our door. We're not, by and large, we're not subsistence farmers, right? We got some spare time. We can figure these principles out, yeah. right? And and so it's it's the you know the living it portion that that's the toughest because a lot of us aren't like minded. And if you're in the LDS church, you got to wait for those orders to come down from Salt Lake to do it. Um. So in some ways, it, it, the saints could could kind of live them, but didn't necessarily grasp grasp the concept yeah. and the principle. So we're in kind of a reverse thing here, right? Where if we really wanted to know those principles, we could. And and that's why I was so excited when you when you texted me and told me that forty two was the next one coming out, because we we need to understand these principles way better than than we have up to this point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that thought, and, and I'd like to augment it a little bit. Um, to my knowledge, Rocky Ridge Order is the longest standing order in all the history of Mormonism. They started in the 70s, I think late 70s. Um, and so they've learned an awful lot about how to live a united order. And they still struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not in minor situations, 
right. you know, they, they have some really every every few years, you know, they, they have a few months where they, they, they've got to debate some point of doctrine. And the idea that we'll be able to just kind of get together and we'll, we'll just pull together when we need to, um, it, it's, it's kind of laughable. You know, when you're subsistence level living, and, and, and I've, I've had firsthand experience with this last several years, um, off and on, um, after I, I quit my law practice, we, we just hit some really bad financial times. And we've had our ups and downs, but we've had some really subsistence level stuff. And and let me tell you, when your focus of the morning is to go downstairs and start a fire to heat the house, and then your next level is to, you know, try and figure out how are you going to pay this bill and how are you going to get enough food to get you the rest of the, the month, you don't have time to be sitting down and saying, this um, function of our United Order is not working very well. How do we make it more efficient? Right. <laughs> you know, and brother so-and-so really offended me because he was saying, because Jesus is Jehovah, even though I don't believe that, he keeps insisting on it. And now he's saying because of that, he wants to do this thing. And he interprets this scripture this way. And that's going to completely change how we do our order. You think you're going to just move on past that easily? No way. You know, the closest I've seen to that is is in Missouri. They have very strong doctrinal disagreements in their community from time to time. And yet they are so awesome to throw that aside and say, brother so-and-so needs a load of mulch in his yard. And three hours later, somebody's got a load of mulch that's in your yard. And doctrinally different or not, they don't care. They love each other. And so, you know, you want to learn to do that. Those are the people that I've seen that know how to do it. Um, but that doesn't come overnight. You know, no, that comes with, with trial. Yeah, they've been they've been going at that for a couple few decades now, and they're still struggling in a lot of ways. But they're really good at, at those basics of helping each other. But even then, you know, I, I ran a grocery store there, and and we were you know working with people to exchange goods and you know. Get this resource from this person. This resource will try and make connections and make things happen a little bit better than they were there. And you know, some systems they already had in place, they're doing great. But some systems, there's nothing there. And you're trying to find out who can we get eggs from, you know, and whatever the situation is. It takes effort and work to get a system where somebody's making enough eggs for the community, even if everybody has one or two chickens of their own, because you know, they might need 100 chickens and they only have 50 or whatever the situation is. Those types of pragmatic things take a lot of your time. And to think that oh, we'll just pull together when we need to and make it happen. No, you won't. Um, we will sure want to and we will sure hope to. But it's just things things like that don't just pull together simply. It's not right. that easy. Ask anybody in a management situation you know, how easy it is to manage people um, or ask a polygamist with five wives, how easy is it to manage your family? And they're not going to give you a pat two second answer. And, and, and that's, you know, when you get in a survival mode and everything's falling apart and all of a sudden you realize, wow, we, we don't have anybody that manufactures uh, metal stuff and I need a Smith. What am I going to do? Um, that's going to be three days of researching for you or four days or a week or, you know, and then you might, 
I have trouble getting them to do it because they're backlogged. It's just, the, the solutions aren't that simple. Yeah. Um, we, we really do need to be banding together more now, like you're saying. And, and I've seen a lot of people move by the spirit to try and do different things to get groups to work together that way. And uh, I, I think it's necessary and commendable. I'm, I'm super supportive of any of those efforts at whatever level, you know, um, I've got a lot of doctrinal disagreements with uh, LeBaronites and with the Kingstonites and whatever, but I don't care. At some level, if they're trying to live the gospel the best they can, you know, if, if, if they're just saying, I'm just trying to get closer to Father, then put, it, put that aside. I can, I can put shoulder to shoulder with you and dig a ditch. I can shoulder to shoulder with you and go research something for you so that we can talk about, you know, the best way to approach the situation or whatever, you know, share our talents together in any type of a fashion. There's, you know, we work with Babylon all the time. Why can't we work with each other? Absolutely. Because you believe some doctrinal thing I don't because you think you got priesthood keys from a guy who thinks, you know, a, a, a swindler. <laughs> who cares? You know, right. I can still, I can still associate with you. We can still be friends. You know, I've got friends who are pagans. So why can't I have a friend who's LeBaronite? Right. Why can't I have a friend who's Kingstonite? Just because we disagree about who holds the keys or what keys they hold or whatever. I mean, so what? It's yeah. just, it's that, just, that, dude, you're, 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 you're explaining exactly what I meant when I said we may not be able to hug it out on Sundays, but we better figure out how to work together on Saturdays. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, exactly. Cause I feel like it's, it's, it's getting time. We, we, everyone I talk to, everyone that I have an opportunity to sit down and talk with all describe the same feeling. It feels like our society is hurtling towards an event. What that event yeah. is, I have no idea, but I can tell you from the general feeling, it ain't going to be great. And so yeah. this is the time to kind of prepare and, and, I would say start with just learning these principles. Go get Drew's annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants and sit down and read that thing. Read not only what's in your Doctrine and Covenants, but read what the early brethren were talking about because they lived through it. They heard Joseph talk, and they will have insights that we aren't necessarily privy to until we read those things, but... Dude, good stuff. I don't think we've ever I've ever done quite this deep of a dive on on consecration and and united order before. So, good good stuff. Thanks for thanks for coming on again, man. You bet. Super glad to do it. And and you know, I I just I am so grateful for what you're doing, and I'm so grateful to see other people out there doing similar stuff. You know, just talking about these things, airing them out. I listened to the debate between Taylor and uh was it michael ness uh, no there was one jacob vadreen and uh, yeah it's jacob vadreen and taylor on and justin on, frankham yeah on on uh, blacks in the priesthood and uh you know i i think that stuff is so good to have out there and to see you know what different people are thinking and, and stretch our minds a little bit and and uh just just to open that dialogue there's so much anti-Brighamite stuff out there. There's so much anti-Mormon stuff out there. Uh, it's to have a faithful venues where people are disagreeing but trying to come to the truth. Uh, I, I'm just I'm so grateful to see it out there. I I personally don't um, 
do well with listening to podcasts regularly. I, it just doesn't fit my work very well. Sure. Um, I'm writing and thinking all the time. <laughs> my brain gets clogged and I've got to, you know, listen to some sci- sci-fi fantasy or something to get myself going. But, um, and I'm horrible with auditory stuff, but I, I love that, that we've got the, the venue for, for people to do. And I know a lot of people commute and that's, you know, their mainstay of learning. And um, anyway, super grateful for it and glad to see um, your, your talents go in that direction too. Well, I sure appreciate that. It, I, I appreciate the sentiment and, and dude, our conversations, I always enjoy them a ton. I always end up learning way something more. So dude, let's keep in touch as always. And when you, you crank out something new, which should be in about six hours, right? I mean, if you keep, yeah, on, I'm, I'm planning on it <laughs> six hours. So we'll, we'll get you back on. We'll talk about that as well. Where can people find that annotated version of the doctrine and covenants? So every, everything is on Amazon. Um, everything's print on demand these days. And uh, <clears throat> if I could um, mention, mention on that, um, I'm doing the entire Doctrine and Covenants and dozens, like I think there's 60 or 70 or something, unpublished revelations all annotated in the same way eventually as part of this project. I'm, I'm doing them digitally, so everything's hyperlinked, so you can um, look at stuff super fast. I've got um, a video on, on how that works on Forgot Mormon teachings on Facebook, but I'm, I'm ultimately going to be doing this on a whole series. And so if there are any of our listeners, readers, whatever, who are reading DNC 76 annotated, whether it's Joseph Smith edition or early brethren or whatever, if they're formatting things or something you'd like to see change or different, I am super open to um, critique criticism whatever um, I'm not super happy with every little detail myself um, I'm just I, I don't know how to change stuff because of the project I'm doing is so huge um, but if, if anybody has has thoughts that way uh, understand I'm super open to ideas and thought I want this to be accessible to a teenager to read and, and understand and follow and learn and the, I, I'm especially sensitive for the new generation that's why I'm doing digital versions but um, I, I, at any rate, just want to throw that out there that I'm, I'm open to any ideas of how to make it better. And, and so the, the final product for the, the whole Doctrine and Covenants when it's done is something that feeds the needs of everybody, whether it's the mom who's not super well-educated or it's dad who's got a PhD or it's a teenager just trying to figure out where am I in fundamentalism, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, I just I just wanted to throw that out there, and uh, um, reviews um, help help me somewhere. It helps helps me get people who are not familiar with what I'm doing to buy, but it also gives me the opportunity to know what my readers want, so that I can put out more. Uh, I put out four books last year in ten editions of new books total. And next year I want to match that, do something the same. I've got some really big um, topics coming up and any critique and feedback I've got will just make what I'm doing better for, for everybody else. So um, anyway. Perfect. All right, everybody go, go to Amazon, get your version of, uh, of, of the annotated version of the doctrine and covenants. Drew, dude, it's epic as always. And we'll talk at you next time. All right. <laughs> all right. Sounds great. God bless. Right. Take care. Bye everybody. Oh, 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 o